0: Welcome to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm with Alejandra Bronfman. Dr. Bronfman is an associate professor of history at SUNY Albany. Her research focuses on 20th century Caribbean and Latin American history as it intersects with violence, race, the production of knowledge, and sonic archives. Some of our listeners recognize Dr. Bronfman as she founded the New Books Network and Caribbean Studies channel in 2015. Today, we are here to discuss her book, Isles of Noise, Sonic Media in the Caribbean, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press
1: in 2016. Welcome, Alejandra. Thank you so much, Sharika. It's um, it's a pleasure to be here, but it's a little bit weird to be on the other side.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I imagine so, but I'm so um, really pleased that you agreed to do this interview, and I'm really excited to have this discussion with
1: you about your work. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I usually like to
0: begin um, my interviews with a bit of an introduction for our listeners. Would you mind telling us a bit about either your personal or intellectual biography?
1: Well, um, sure. It, it depends on how much you want to know. And I guess, um, the, the, the big lesson to draw from it is that I did not have a straightforward path to this point at all. It was pretty circuitous. Um, actually this is my second career. I started out as a professional ballet dancer right after high school. Um, and then I went to, um, uh, college and then grad school and in grad school, I was going to do early modern Europe. Um, and then about a semester in, I decided that I just couldn't face early modern Europe and I had to do something (laughs) that I was a little bit, um, more, um, passionately interested in. And that was, um, and that was the Caribbean and race, which is what led me to my first, my first book on, um, on race and, um, social science in Cuba.
0: How are you, um, how did you come to have this opportunity to serve
1: as the first um, podcast host of New Books Network in Caribbean Studies? So um, I, a, a couple of my colleagues at UBC, University of British Columbia, which is where I taught for 15 years, one of the one of them um was a podcast host and then another colleague who teaches at um Simon Fraser University Roxanne Panchazi who does the new books in french studies they were both doing it and talking about it and um uh sort of just talking about what what fun it was and what a great opportunity it was to talk to to authors and to engage books in ways that were not you know 800 word review in and out, you know, say a couple of nice things, say one critical thing, just so people take you seriously, and get out of there. Right. Like it was, it's a, and, and it's true. It's been a really, really wonderful way to read books, um, really kind of differently if you know that you're gonna to talk to the author and just to get a chance to to have a conversation with him. It's it's a privilege. And um I started out in the new books in Latin America, which was already um up and running. And I thought, hmm, there's not nobody's doing new books in the Caribbean and and we need one of those. And um as you know, uh the the founder and director Marshall Poe is one of the most wonderful and impressive people I can I know about. And he just said, sure, you know, do whatever, do, do what you want and do what you can. And and it's been um, it's been really fun.
0: So you managed to escape a career of being a historian of the early modern Europe to be one of the Caribbean. And your work initially started out on questions about race in Cuba. How did you go from um, for those of our listeners who have not read your first book, um, which deals with social science, scientists, and race and citizenship in Cuba? How do you go? How did you go from there to being interested in communication technologies like the radio and and broadcasting?
1: So, um, a couple of the black activists that I wrote about in Measures of Equality used um the radio to to broadcast some of their kinds of speeches and and to try to mobilize people in the late 1930s and in fact the um the constitutional convention and in cuba uh for the leading up to the constitution of 1940 was all broadcast on the radio and so um i started and funnily enough that didn't make it into this book because i couldn't find very much on it but um but but um, maybe somebody else can write that book. <laughs> um, uh, um, so I got really interested in, um, you know, these efforts at communication and being, you know, being in, inhabiting the world that we live in and thinking about what is our, you know, what is our kind of media ecology look like? And, and what, what does that mean to us? And what what did it mean for people to be able to sort of listen to, to news and and music coming out of a box for the very first time. And so I got really interested in kind of circuits and information, how information flows and how actually materially that made a difference in people's lives.
0: Well, I wanted to take you up on what you just stated here and kind of draw our listeners' attention to some of the broader um, points that you lay out in your book, Isles of Noise. And one of them is the simply the, the, the space of the Caribbean and how it's linked to these new communication technologies in the 20th century, um, some of us might be surprised um, by how much um, the Caribbean was at the forefront of these new communication technologies. Would you mind sharing a little bit about um, why the Caribbean um, actually ended up playing a particularly important um, kind of role um, in the development and these larger kind of global processes of um, communication.
1: Yeah. And I, I guess I was surprised too, but in retrospect, I, I shouldn't have been And and um, I tried to sort of emphasize that, right. I mean, it was, it was Sydney Mintz who, um, who told us a long time ago that the Caribbean has been entangled in the wider world and, um i think that we as historians we took that up really really well in thinking about the slave trade and slavery and other um sort of forms of capitalism but we hadn't done that so clearly with um this idea of communications technologies and that as a supporter of and a form of capitalism right and so um once you just once you sort of keep that in mind um communications technologies pop up everywhere from and and in fact, I, um, I I had to kind of make an artificial beginning in, with the coming of the wireless, um, as opposed to the telegraph, because the telegraph has its own kind of history um, that precedes it in the late 19th century, and that and so like once you once you start to think about how those technologies grew, especially coming out of the United States, um, the Caribbean was just really part of. A, of a circuit and part of a network that we've, I mean, we've known about from the, you know, from the, from, from the moments of the slave trade, these kinds of um, things that moved back and forth from the Caribbean to the, to, to the Eastern coast to the East Coast or to Florida. And those are the very same paths that uh, communications technologies are following. The, the telegraph follows the path from Key West, you know, to Cuba. Um, and then, and then the telephone as well. And then, and so all of those are kind of incorporated into this kind of, you know, growing and encroaching kind of U.S. capitalist empire that you see in the beginning of the 20th century. And then with the military expansion, you see it as well, right? Because when the, when the, um, the U.S. occupies a place like Haiti or the Dominican Republic, one of the first things they do is land a radio, right? So um, that's also sort of essential to their military practices. And I talk a little bit, excuse me, a little bit um, less about the British um, imperial aspect, which is there as well, but it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit more muted in the Caribbean, but it comes out more clearly sort of later on.
0: You're right in the fact that it, it, it seems, you know, obvious for scholars who are, who work on the Caribbean and or Latin American, the Caribbean, that, of course, there's all this movement and um, circulation of peoples and goods and ideas. And it's inter, you know, laced with the kind of capitalist um, kind of movements as well. And yet. I mean, I found it really striking how you you know you're able to kind of draw closer attention to that, and you do so through these overlapping um, kind of case studies between or among haiti and and Cuba and Jamaica and I was curious as to how did you come to those three particular countries as kind of
1: your case studies um, yeah, that's a good question, and I'm, I'm not I'm not sure that I have um, a great answer. For it, I mean, I think ideally, I, I didn't want to write a book about just one country, and I also um, ideally wanted to think about three different, very different kinds of linguistic slash imperial kinds of spaces, um, and to think about the overlaps and connections between them, rather than and to try and sort of bring those together, rather than as you know. A lot of times, you know, the the Anglophone Caribbean literature is not in conversation with the Francophone Caribbean literature, nor is it in com- conversation with the Hispanic Caribbean literature. So I was trying a little bit to to see if uh, I could bring those um, together and not artificially either, because the a lot of the, the, the sort of thinking about the connections in communications technologies between and among them and the ways that, interestingly, uh, what I found was that people on the islands, which are so close to one another, were watching and paying attention to the ways that people on other islands were using or not using their communications technologies so um so I, that was the kind of big picture i knew I knew Cuba was going to be part of the picture because I was familiar with it and I had worked in it before haiti I found really really intriguing, especially when I started to think about the u s occupation and the role that it had had in 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 radio and communications in haiti, um and then um Jamaica, I chose because I had also uh, done a little bit of work there, but also it was a it was an intriguing um, kind of counter example to a lot of the the things that I was finding in Cuba and Haiti and you know, I'm not sure that that was a perfect choice initially, I also had martinique um in there. And, um, some people said, well, why didn't you work on the DR? Um, (laughs) some people said, why didn't you work on Puerto Rico? And, you know, I mean, I, I guess I could have done all of that and written an 800 page book that, that, you know, I, I would not have finished, but, um, (laughs) um, that there, there was, um, there's a lot to be done and, and in some ways, um, the countries were a little bit less important than the, the sources that emerged from early kind of preliminary research and what I thought I might be able to do with them. I guess that's the best way to answer that question. Mm -hmm.
0: It seems to me that, um, to kind of draw on two threads that you've mentioned. Um, one, the case example of, of Haiti um, as in a kind of intriguing case example seems to play out really well in your book. And I thought we might um, delve in a little bit deeper with that particular case as you reference it in your chapter on circuits. Um, you, you point out um, early on, and, and I think it bears r- truth in this chapter as well, that um Sometimes, you know, you might think that communication technologies um, would have been really effective tools for um, imperial agents or American military occupiers in the case of Haiti. But you show that it, it it doesn't mean that they're always able to use them in the way that they've intended to. And so I thought you might want to share a little bit with the listeners um, about the challenges um, that these American military occupiers faced um, in their um, kind of introduction or kind of expansion, really, of um, these new communication technologies, and how um, they had difficulty, and, and sometimes they were able to experiment with them in order to, um, you know, stop, you know, opposing, you know, groups, rebel groups, for example, like the Cacos in Haiti.
1: Yeah. So um, um, that's a uh, I like that that question a lot because. Um, I guess it, it lets me talk about ways that I was able to push back against certain kinds of things that I was starting to um feel like I wanted to push back against. And one of them was this um, which is kind of um breaking down a little bit now, but when I started writing the book, there's a way in which historians of radio talk about radio as it's as if it's this kind of you know, relentless march towards progress, right? And sort of the radio is born and then it spreads far and wide and everybody loves it and you know the end and, and so um um it, it, it and, and and I found pretty pretty quickly um that that was certainly not the case in haiti and in part it was born of you know my own frustration in trying to sort of even find radio in the archive because the earliest radio there's no there's no file or folder or you know or or um you know space where radio is it actually moves around it starts out in um in it starts out in communications but most of the communications files were about roads uh, and then it and then it pops up again so there's not very much on radio in the communications files then it pops up again in sort of you know uprisings um, and things like that and, and it, it kind of like it was very very diffuse um, and very kind of hard to grasp and and when I finally got a hold of sort of a bunch of um a bunch of sources, I realized that part of what was going on was this kind of frustration with the fact that it just wasn't working very well right and this was this was nineteen fifteen to nineteen nineteen and so and so just at the very beginning of kind of radio technologies and they're mostly what they were talking about was. Well, it's not working. So, you know, try to use the telephone. But if it's that, if that's not very secure, you you know, use this or that. And can we get somebody to repair this? And can we, you know, we need to fix this. And this is broken again. And where are the parts? And what do we do? Um, so, so there was that kind of very material, very sort of like, um, let's talk about technology not when it works, but when it's broken. Kind of aspect that it allowed me to do. But then, in a kind of more broad more broadly, um, it allowed me also to sort of think about Haitians, the relationship between Haitians and the occupying Marines, as one in which sometimes the power relations were reversed because the the communications technologies, radio, telephone, etc., were meant to just you know provide other ways to control. Patients and 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 that just it just didn't happen. They were unable in many settings to control patients or even to sort of find ways to 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 understand. Um, One of the things they they didn't seem to realize is that is that Creole, you know, was going to be a problem for them, (laughs) and that they wouldn't be able to understand what people were saying. And so, um, this whole idea of you know we're gonna we're gonna come and we're gonna occupy and we're gonna be able to control them perfectly it was pretty it was pretty easy to see pretty early on that between, you know, market women resisting um the efforts of Marines to get them to spy on their on their um husbands or or, or the men around them who were actively resisting sort of the failure of that enterprise to get them to be a communication network. Um, and then the other kinds of larger failures that meant that they, they, in a lot of ways, they, they felt, um, like they weren't in control. And this is not to deny any of the, of the violence or the, you know, the atrocities that occurred, which I also talk about a little bit, but, but it, but it allowed me to talk a little bit more about, um, the ways thinking about communications technologies even though it was supposed to give, you know, lend more power and be a tool of empire and all of that, um, really just didn't work that well.
0: I found it so fascinating when you you discuss these market women. I mean, because you're you know, the impression someone would have gotten when they picked up the book and it's about communication technologies is exactly what you stated, this, I don't know, progression that of course the technologies would be so modern and so effective that, you know, it would kind of more or less kind of control the populace and what you describe are the various, um, you know, problems they had from when they would lay down the technology and then people would destroy them or the fo- the language of Creole and not having enough people who understood the language or even just, you know, the ways in which understanding information circulated and the, the market women um, being so pivotal to knowing everything that would be happening and, and how could you um, garner, you know, their um, kind of their their support and, and helping you with, the, you know, the project of occupation and then the ways they worked against it. Um, I thought it was quite um, effective, and and it really provided um, a kind of a clear understanding of how this particular technology at that moment in time and in that particular space played out. Um, you know, really well. I thought that was an interesting approach to this to this discussion.
1: Yeah, and you know, the the market women it, that. They're just, it's just, they're so wonderful in so many ways. Um, And you really can't, um, can't avoid them in the sources. Um, You, you think, you know, you start out writing and you think you're going to, you're going to write about, you know, inventors and radio operators and all this stuff. And, and there are the market women. And it allowed me to really rethink actually um, a lot of the writing and, um, and really start with them the chapter opens with them very deliberately and um most of the chapters i think most of the chapters in the book i really tried to start in the caribbean with people from the caribbean not with these technologies which are kind of arriving right so it allowed me to kind of shift the the perspective just a little bit um and and yeah like they you know they are kind of instrumental they are the information network and it is the U.S. occupiers who are trying to kind of break into it and make one of their own and use these market women as part of their information network. And they just, they just don't let it happen, you know? And so, um, and, and, and they are kind of remarkably all over the sources. Everybody knows how important they are and how crucial it is to get them on board. Mm. You
0: also mentioned, and, and you elaborate on this um, towards the end of um, the chapter on circuits about um, how the Marines um, were, you know, put in a position where they started to kind of experiment um, um, with these new communication technologies in, in volatile ways. And I was struck by one particular um, kind of passage that you, you wrote in, in that chapter where you where you write, the machine that the US military talked to and used to produce false versions of events was also the machine that, as Captain Brown threatened, will make you talk. So I was hoping that you might um, talk a little bit about your discussion of this electro-torture, as you call it in the book, and how it fits into the larger kind of thinking about the um, arrival and use
1: of these communication technologies. Yeah, um, thanks for that question. That's one of the Kind of most—that's the darkest, probably spot in the book, and one of the most difficult things to wrap my head around. Uh, and it was really thanks to Kate Ramsey, who teaches at the University of Miami, when I was giving a paper about some aspect of this, and she said, "You know, there's a mention of radio in the um, in the thousand-page report of the, um, the uh, given to Congress in of the activities in." Haiti and Santo Domingo. And going. I went and, and looked. And and there it was, there was this um, sort of evidence that the Marines had taken the wires um, from the radios and, and basically attached them to two Haitians and electrocuted them um, as a way of sort of torturing them and getting them to talk. And um, I also, I was really surprised because I had uh, there there are allusions to that practice but much later on and they also sort of ascribe it to the french um, and here was evidence that the americans were actually the first ones using this uh kind of torture and they were doing it in haiti where which nobody had really written about before so it was it was shocking and um awful and i and i had to figure out a way to to make it part of the story because it seemed to be a really important part of the story. And the connection then was with the other thing that you found was that there was all of this back and forth about, um, the telegraph creating, um, creating the documentation of atrocities and in some in some cases um people being asked to either destroy the documentation or not make it in the first place right so you could see both the kind of archive being made or unmade or partially made and then at the same time the archive of um you know Haitians being forced to to talk or to 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 sort of hand over their companions or whatever it was that that also being made and all kind of going back to the radio and so it was this kind of coming together of all of these different things and i mm-hmm. tried i tried to tell that story i'm not sure if i <laughs> if i succeeded but um it was a story that i felt like i needed to tell and it, it 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 doesn't um the rest of the book um you know isn't that dark the rest of the book kind of goes along in a more kind of conventional radio history sort of way, I would I, I, I would say. Um, but that kind of needed to be in there, I think.
0: Well I guess it speaks to your point about I mean your kind of your overarching point about how um you know these these new communication technologies really played out differently. Depending on which island you know you're looking at, there's some overlapping, but there are some distinctions that I, I think in our conversation you'll be able to um, continue to point to. You you leave, you do kind of end on this dark moment in, in the circuits um, chapter to move on to your next chapter, um, which, you know, focuses on the receivers. And, and you start out that chapter um, in, in kind of an unusual, I guess, maybe for me, a little bit unusual way after reading um, the circuits chapter where it's kind of drawing on the uh, kind of the conflict and the kind of contestation over Haiti among all these different players to this sort of. I don't know, um, transnational history of the making and kind of the circulation of this emergent radio broadcasting. And I thought that it could be um, helpful for the listeners if you could kind of talk a little bit about um, how you explain the kind of spatial kind of process of connecting the Caribbean within this kind of larger um, um, radio kind of technology that's emerging, you know, um, in you know, from Europe and the United States, but how Asia forms a part of that story as well?
1: Um, yeah, and that was uh, it's um, it's hard to kind of reconstruct that, actually, to, <laughs> to be honest. But um, but it, I mean, once you think about the time period, right? Once you think about the 1920s and 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 the, just a little bit before that, and you think about the growth of American imperialism, and especially, you know, bananas, the United Fruit Company, which actually was, you know, one of the sort of, or, or the, the organization that brought a lot of um, sort of radio equipment and, and installed a lot of radio equipment in the, in the region, right. And so this idea of the kind of growing connectedness of the, of the connectedness in terms of the communications technologies uh, in the world. And, I was also really fascinated and I guess it's not really, you know, like the link between that last, that Haiti chapter and the way that I, a little bit roam around the world. What I wanted to do in that first part of the chapter, I think that's where it is, is think about all of the parts that that are involved in in putting a radio together. Right. And so if the if the first chapter ends thinking about wires very specifically, um, then I was thinking about, okay, what is this you know, what is this machine made of? What what goes into the making of this machine and how 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 do we tell that story? How do we tell a story that also that includes. All of that labor and all of the parts and all of the travel that all those different parts and things had to do to come together in these factories that made the radios that then shipped them out or the or the equipment or whatever it was that then shipped them out and so it's a story that i mean it's global in the sense if you think about if you think about sort of global capital and and the united fruit company etc but it's also global if you think about and the the ways that that different bits and pieces of the of the earth you know From mica to bakelite, which is a kind of plastic, all come together in the making of this little machine. And that, you know, I I was admittedly influenced by a lot of the work that people are doing in media studies, um, thinking about the materiality of media. And in particular, today there are people doing really interesting work on, you know, where does not not just where does stuff come from, but where does it go after it becomes obsolete? What happens to all of the waste? Um, so I was trying to sort of draw together, think about these um, these you know little kind of devices, contraptions um, as as having a lot of different components and a lot of people working and um, in different contexts uh, working to to get these things out for better or for worse.
0: But I found that that opening really was effective, particularly for, um, you know, h- historians who work, you know, on uh, global, you know, capitalist movement of commodities, as you pointed out, you know, many of us maybe don't focus on mica or bakelite, but, you know, we would we, we know about bananas or sugar and, and, and thinking about kind of labor processes. It, um, it it kind of intersected in already established frames by but offering a new case example that can be um, interwoven into those larger narratives that some of us are, are already familiar with, um, and then it leads, you know, into a larger discussion actually about how. Um, you know the, the these new technologies and the technicians who now are responsible for um, using them and developing them um how they became involved increasingly in you know political disputes as you point out um in Haiti um, kind of with pushing out American marine occupation um but labor strikes in in Cuba and Jamaica and so I was you know hoping that we could discuss a little bit about the the the, the technicians I guess the people who are are you know, building and developing and experimenting with these emergent um, technologies, and how do they figure into those stories?
1: Yeah, and I guess, um, I mean, I guess the connection is always because it is always it goes back to, you know, stuff that I found it in the in the archives and in the sources, and I thought, what, how, what, you know, <laughs> like there was a um, when I was just to go back to Micah for just a minute, which is a bit of an obsession. Um, there was a a drawing of a mountain and this kind of kind of majestic phrase about mica coming from the earth, you know, and that was in a radio collection. And so I thought, wait, what's that doing there? And and so then that, that led me to sort of think about think more deeply about Micah and why people in radio might have cared so deeply about about Micah. But then also to connect it to these kinds of technicians and what I I call them tinkerers right again that was um that was so evident in in the sources when i was looking at cuba at the cuban newspapers for evidence of okay well so so um you know radio um shows up in the early 1920s and what you know what did people think what did they do how did they use them and what i really found was um, not so much, you know, accounts of programs or, or things like that, but kind of manuals about how to build your own radio or, you know, ha- how to make a radio if you don't have any of the parts that you are supposed to have or if your kit is, you know, too expensive or how do you, you know, how do you put this together with stuff from your own home and use, you know, a coat hanger and whatever else is available. And so it became also became clear to me that part of the appeal was really, um, kind of just fiddling with these machines in a very kind of tactile and, and kind of material sense. And then, um, you realized pretty, pretty quickly that those, those were the people who knew how to use it and they could use it for, you know, whatever, um, they thought was important. And, and suddenly, um, that becomes a kind of, they become the brokers, right? Because if you if you know how to break something, or if you know how to fix something, something like a communications technology that gives you a lot of power. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it, that resonates with with a lot of the stuff that we're seeing today, and you can really sort of see a lot of the a lot of the continuities um, with 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 things like that. Your your
0: next chapter on um, voice is. One of my favorites is I don't know between the circuits and the voice, but um, in that chapter, um, you really want to show the struggles over what you call um, sonic blackness, or more precisely, I guess, the, the role of Creole languages um in broadcast radio at the time in, in places like Jamaica and, in Haiti. And I thought it might be um, helpful for the listeners to understand kind of what was the nature of those debates and how were they resolved? Because they're, 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 they're very different. They're very distinct. It's where there's some overlap that Creole languages are being contested or, or, or dealt with, with the emergent radio um, technology, but they're handled in different ways.
1: Yeah. So um, uh, the, Jamaica, actually, which we haven't really um, spoken about very much, is a really interesting example in that regard, right? Because I also very surprising to me when I when I went in not knowing very much about Jamaican radio, uh, and I had just kind of assumed that it followed a very similar trajectory to a kind of global history, which is you know, radio shows up in the nineteen twenties, and by the nineteen thirties or forties, everybody's listening, and then you know, it becomes more popular. And actually that didn't happen at all. And 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 J- Jamaica didn't even get its own radio station until 1938. And even then, not very many people were listening. And I kept looking for listeners and thinking, well, where are they? And why, what's going on? And then I realized um, that part of what was going on was that they weren't really listening to the radio because it was mostly this kind of very boring or very patronizing, you know, BBC Uh, inflected, you know, programs about how to grow bananas or, you know, classical music listening or, or, or things that just really didn't seem to have much of a hold on people and that people were mostly listening to the sound systems in that period. Um, And then I thought, okay, well, so how did we, how do we get from that to, you know, Jamaica being one of the sources of the most, you know, of global music, right? Of reggae and all of that kind of stuff and um it led me to these to these kinds of debates about Creole and um which in in some ways was a stand-in for you know the BBC versus versus Jamaican language um and you know whether it was apt whether whether Jamaican language, what Brathwaite calls nation language, was appropriate for the radio, people were very upset when they heard even little bits of um Jamaican on on Jamaican Creole on the radio, and there were long debates about whether you know that was appropriate or whether you know people should even be talking in talking in that way and whether it was going to hold them back on the job market or. You know whether it was everybody's you know right to 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 sort of talk that way, and these kinds of emerging debates about what was appropriate and what was not to be on the radio and then of course, I came across the amazing Louise Bennett um, and was lucky enough um, to find some recordings of her on the radio and sort of reading some of her poems about language and about. Creole, and that it just um, she is so astonishing and so kind of um, invoices everything about those debates. Um, that it, it was just that was just a really fun um, chapter to write and to think about and to to sort of also allow her uh, a little bit of space in that historiography because she's often been um, she's often talked about as a kind of great jamaican figure but but also often very often very much um you know a comedian or um not taken or a, a kind of folklorist or something and not taken as the kind of serious intellectual about language and identity that that she really was
0: and jamaica you're right i mean you you think of the 1950s into the 60s with you know um you know the jamaican reggae music you know starting to explode and you there would have been a, a kind of a sense that of course um as radio developed they would have had a rich um programming in 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 jamaican creole or or Patois, as you pointed out that was even being debated what do you call the vernacular spoken on the island and and yet it seemed to have um really pushed away the development of kind of a, a radio vernacular kind of culture to some degree or or it or it fell much later than perhaps a place like Haiti where you point out that actually creole was used um very early on um sort of as a necessity so I thought it'd be interesting to contrast um, what happened in Jamaica with what happened
1: in in Haiti with creole yeah the um the adoption of creole did happen uh pretty much earlier on. And initially uh, what I found was that a U.S. kind of based program actually put uh, Creole on the radio. There may be earlier instances of that, um, that, that put it with, um, with actual, with Haitians doing the programming. And um, but, but anyway, the, I think it was, it was much, the, the debate was, a different kind of one, and just the the way that Haitian history went, um, Creole had a very different inflection and was uh, taken up as a kind of national language um, ironically, you know by people like I mean of course by Jean Pimars and 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 people like that, but also ironically by the duvalier, um, right so so um <laughs> the the promotion of Creole. Um, as a kind of national language was initially, you know, sort of in the same spirit as um, happened in many places in the Caribbean, but um, he, he kind of um, appropriated it and turned it to very different ends, which is, um, which makes it a real contrast to a place like Jamaica.
0: In your Chapter on ears, where you're you're sort of focusing now on what you call listening publics, particularly during the the, the Cuban Revolution. Um, And for students and scholars of Cuba or the Caribbean more broadly, you know, it's accepted knowledge that the radio was a component to the events that unfolded um, there. But I I have to be honest, I never really considered radio in the the circuits of information um, as you laid it out in this chapter. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the role of radio and and kind of information, how people were listening, um, you know, during this really pivotal moment in the Caribbean.
1: Yeah, that um, that was it. That's it. It's always the hardest question, right? It's always hard. And this is the question that everybody asks and nobody can answer, which is how did people hear? You know, how did people listen? And what what did it mean to them um, to be listening to these things? Right. And so I, I found that in in bits and pieces, I had to kind of put it together and actually uh, found it really interesting to historicize that very question right and to discover that um the radio listener surveys emerged just around that time and the surveyors themselves debated okay how do you even uh, how do you even get at what people are doing when they listen to the radio you know are they just you know sitting there zoning out because it's you know the program that their wife wants to listen to or are they really paying attention or are they kind of coming and going and this this question of attention and 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 you know hearing and orality comes up over and over again even you know not just for us now but even then and so it was kind of a it was a little bit of a methodological challenge right to just see okay like what, what can i pull out of this um and I guess the story in Cuba of the, you know, Radio Rebelde is more, um, is more commonly told. And I felt like I had to, I could devote a little bit less attention to that. But certainly leading up to it, there were plenty of instances, not just where people were paying rapt attention to the radios, but even, you know, people in power and those opposing them recognized that radio was the tool that they had to control or or lose control of in order to, you know, rest control of in, in order to, to, to rule. And um, what I found really fun about that Cuban uh, example was in the very first hours of the revolution, um, it, it seems like everybody was really glued to the radio and Castro kind of told people to go home and to listen and to sort of, he would direct them via the radio as to when they could go out to the streets and celebrate and when they could do what. And right. And so like the idea that everybody was kind of (laughs) sitting there, you know, following the rule, following the orders of, of, you know, via radio of what, you know, Castro was doing and what he was going to do next. I found that kind of entrancing, I guess. Um, (laughs) So yeah <laughs> i don't know if that answers your question <laughs>
0: yeah no i I wanted to if if we have some time i I would like to go back to a couple of things you mentioned earlier and and one has to do with just you know how do you do research on um you know kind of the orality of kind of of the past right um what you talk about as uh the sonic archive. You mentioned before that it was difficult sometimes to even, you know, kind of trace down um, material, archival material about kind of the radio. Um, do you find them in the files on communications, which you write about infrastructure and roads and, you know, that kind of thing. Sometimes you mentioned you would find them in uprisings. So how did you come to get a handle on, on the sonic sources, if you will? Um, th-
1: that was the most interesting challenge and I don't know if I did it adequately or perfectly or anything like that but basically I just kind of opened up to whatever whatever seemed interesting and available and also um, I was guided by not just by sort of ra- the the sources that historians of radio were using, but the but thinking about radio as a kind of history of technology problem, and also as a sound studies problem. And so I um, I s- stretched out the 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 source base in a way to to kind of be pretty inclusive, and to try to think about how how could I use this source to talk about radio? So for example, um, one of the things that I found was I, I found this ethnography um, about rural Jamaica. Um, and I was trying to, this was when I was trying to figure out, okay, who were Jamaicans listening? Who How were they listening? You know, did they have radios? And there are these lovely descriptions in this ethnography of, you know, village life and it contrasts two different villages and t- just talks about things that you wouldn't think would be related. Like, okay, so people have their plots and their plots are, are three miles away and they spend all day walking to and from their plots. Uh, and you know, that's what they do all day. And I thought, of course, nobody's going to be listening to the radio because this was before, um, Transistor portable radios. Nobody's going to be listening to the radio when they're walking back and forth. In the in the sort of more middle class towns, the radio was a kind of uh, a evidence of middle class um, status, and so those families were listening. But other, but but sort of people who had to walk to their plots were not. And so I kind of I kind of I, I sort of dug into whatever I could to find ways to think about. How does how does you know radio work with daily life and with schedules and with things like gender and work and things like that? Um, and then in terms of the the, the biggest challenge, and this is this was what you know people always ask was okay, well, what about actual sound, right? Like did you how much actual sound <laughs> were you able to to find? And that's where it becomes a story of archives, you know, and people like Louise Bennett had been archived. Um, a lot of people a lot of programs and um, and people were lost uh, in the years since I've written the book we have now uh, a couple of really incredible archives both of them Cuban both digitized um, that uh, probably would have changed the entire book if i had had access to them um, when I was writing um, and so sort of by by bits and pieces you know just uh expanding the the definition of radio to be about listening and also to be about the very you know material things that that were that were actual radios which is if you um if you that's that's why the the chapter titles are what they are because i i found that i, I could at least trace these kinds of objects and and talk about them as a way to talk about radio
0: I mean, if I if I could push a little bit more on this question, just because I I think it's really fascinating to for students, whether graduate students or undergraduates, to think about um, how you know to what degree did your um, methodology have to change? Um, for example, you mentioned Louise Bennett, and you had her poems, but you also had um, you know samples of her her broadcasts. You could hear her perform. Um, are you you know, feeling that you need to rely on something, you know, methodologically different beyond just the expansion of the types of sources that you would, um, you know, normally, you know, use.
1: Yeah, it, I and guess. And it might be a question
0: beyond, you know, beyond you, if you want to not go that
1: far. Yeah, no, Um. I think that probably uh, the most interesting thing for me was, finding sound studies, right? And when I started doing the research, I, sound studies was just starting to be a kind of thing, right? So the, the the big books in that field were had just come out, um, and I was kind of scrambling to read them. And of course they were all you know, they're wonderful books, but they're North America slash European directed. And so there was not not very much there. But but just thinking about that as as an added dimension and thinking about listening actually as a methodology, um, and also, you know, when you can't listen, <laughs> listening for listening, um, or as people like Tom McEnany, you know, do they they read for listening? Um, you know, there there are lots of people who have approached this in really creative and fascinating ways. But I think just opening up that that uh, sense of Okay, this is this is about text, but it's also about other kinds of things, and so you have to use other kinds of other kinds of tools. And I think, in some ways, for me, th- this idea of listening um, took on a, a much greater uh, kind of weight than I had anticipated, uh, and kind of just works its way into everything, right? And if you think about how how important um, listening is, or should be, um, in you know, in political life, or in my teaching life, for example, or in whatever, in you know, dealing with your kids, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, just sort of um, opening up to that as a category and as a way of thinking and doing and being in the world um, is one of the things that I'm I feel really lucky to have encountered.
0: Alejandra, I'm curious to hear, what are you working on now? Do you have, um, you know, any small or large projects underway?
1: Yeah, I have um, I have some small stuff underway. I'm working with some of these newly digitized resources that I mentioned earlier. Um, there's a, a great, a wonderful archive of Universidad del Aire, which is a Cuban radio program. Um, which has which has uh, yielded some really fascinating um some really fascinating stuff so i'm working on on uh an article about that and then there's um the other archive that's been um really important that i mentioned at the end of the book is the jean dominique archive and um i'm also doing a small project about that and the um the relationship with Argentine human rights workers who come and visit Cuba and the the discussions that they have on the radio and, um, the idea of, a kind of, you know, uh, South South sort of interactions in terms of, um, in terms of human rights and, and impunity and, um, and in radio and, 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 and sort of talking about those kinds of things. Um, so those are kind of the smallish uh, projects. And then I'm, I'm working on a, a bigger project that has to do with uh, sound and environment um, and kind of post-military spaces, uh, particularly in Puerto Rico and these two spaces that were bombed for many years in Culebra and Vieques um, and thinking about, um, the kind of the impact and after effects of sound, both on people, on, on animals, on the landscape, and also um, as it worked its way into uh, media and artistic expression about those places.
0: Well, I know that I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I'll be looking forward to all of those projects, both your small article projects and in the larger book projects soon. I want to thank you for giving me the time to interview you
1: about Isle of Noise, Alejandra. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure uh, talking to you. If
0: you would like to get a copy of Alejandra's book, Isles of Noise, Sonic Media in the Caribbean, you'll find a link on our New Books Network and Caribbean Studies webpage. Thank you. Until next time.